Hello and welcome to Celebrating Cinema, a podcast for the love of cinema. Before we begin, make sure to like and subscribe our podcast and leave a review to help more people find us. I'm your host, Sophie, joined by my co-host, Kiriko. Hello. Hugo. Hey, what's up? And we have a very special guest today, film producer and occasional film critic when she feels like it, but most importantly, fan extraordinaire of the director we're talking about today, Sasha. Hi. Are we talking about Sasha as the director of, or as the <laughs> fan of a certain director? Of a, the, yeah, the last, the last part. <laughs> because who we're talking about today in preparation of the release of her newest work, Priscilla. What's your name? Priscilla Boyer. You like Elvis Presley? Of course. Who doesn't? One of the kids listening to these days. Bobby Darren, Fabian, and you. <laughs> Just what is the intent here, Mr. Presley? You got women throwing themselves at you. Why my daughter? Well, sir, I happen to be very fond of your daughter. She's much more mature than her age. What? That's 22. That's 22. 22. You don't have to worry about it. Black hair and more eye makeup. I don't know if I like it. Is Sofia Coppola. Woo! Yeah. But before we jump into that, as always, I would like to ask you all what you have been watching lately. Ah, this is some time ago, but I saw... Um Past Lives, which is now in cinema, which I thought was fucking beautiful. And I didn't cry, but if I would have been a crier, I would have definitely cried watching this <laughs> film. Like it's, uh, it was, it, it was so moving, so to the core. Yeah. Everyone's silence and yeah, not I'm agreeing sorry. with me. No, I love <laughs> it. I just feel the disagreements. <laughs> like the tension is climbing. Yes. In your, I'm so sure. I like felt your body my... like tensing up, being like, no. I have <laughs> such a bad poker face. You don't like it? No, it's so mid. Oh, it's so not mid. <laughs> also, I'm very much a crier and I did not shed a tear. <gasps> oh. Oh, wow. Oh. I'm not much of a crier and I did shed a tear. Wow. Ooh. Well, there's two types Ooh, of people in divisive. this world, you know? Yeah. The people who cry at the tree of life and the people who cry at <laughs> <in> past lives. <laughs> Wait, what am I? <laughs> Wait, what, did, what, what makes you cry? What makes you cry? Yeah, Is what makes you cry? Everything. Except for Except Best Life. Except for Best Life. Oh, oh, best Life or Tree of Life. In cinemas, no. <laughs> oh, that's a really good question. What was my re really big last cry is probably uh, other people's children. Hey. Oh, oh, we've just spoken about that. Oh, yeah. People, that film, his mother had to console me the last time we, had <laughs> we went to the cinema. Oh. And it was the second time we watched it. Maybe it's a, it's good to mention why you guys go to the cinema together. Oh, oh yeah, Fair. Well, for for full disclosure, Sasha is my girlfriend. So. I am. What is the recent thing that you've watched? Uh, we went to see May December mm. uh, with our best friends the other night, and I loved it. Banger! It really Five star is. Banger. It's. I did not expect to like this film this much, but oh. the amount of layered um drama but like uh over the top drama small town drama i loved uh but it's also kind of a complex film yeah i really had fun that night 
it's Todd Haynes' persona. It's a, it's really such a great movie. Uh, really good. I recently, or I am in the process of watching a very long documentary series by Ken Burns, who's this very iconic documentarian from the United States. And I'm watching his jazz series. It's called Ken Burns Jazz. Hmm, all right. It's about the history of jazz music um, and about how it started as this, you know, poverty-stricken, uh, grassroots, bottom-up American uh, art form and became this huge industry and also very codified and institutional. And the main thesis of the series is, is that jazz is America's answer basically to European classical music and should be treated as such, as one of the most distinguished art forms that the US has produced in its modern era. Wow. wow. And I agree. And um, <laughs> it's <End> so <laughs> and it's so cool to have all of these like so he uses a lot of archival material and a lot of like diary entries and letters of people that are like, for instance, at like this historical concert that happens like in 1910 with a guy who's kind of like the first jazz musician and somebody's in the audience and wrote about it in their diary and they read that aloud. And so you really get a sense of how this music form progresses through history. It's really cool. Nice. Yeah. Sounds cool. It's very Sounds fulfilling. Very December. Yeah, it's it's oh it's such a December <laughs> viewing. It's crazy. How about you, Sophie? What have you been watching? I watched Pompoko which is not a Miyazaki film, but a Takahata film. And I don't know if anyone has seen it. Yes. But that one was so out of pocket. Like I had no idea. Weird. I had no idea what I was watching. I was just going through all Ghibli's films in chronological order. So I didn't read anything about it at first. And this is a film about, um, about raccoons that kind of use their magic, which, which stems from their testicles to stop sorry what? <laughs> yeah it's so weird which to sort of stop the uh, ecological degradation of like tokyo the they're kind of um cutting down all the forests to create amusement parks and and golf courses and they're trying to stop that because the forest is where they live and they use their magical testicles i think so what i only discovered after seeing this film is that the raccoons with magical testicles mm -hmm. are actually like um, historically sort of mythical figures yeah, in yeah, Japan yeah. that are that just have this power. Yeah, absolutely. It's, just, it's a fact, you know. Yeah. They actually, Big in Japan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is who they are. Yeah, that's yeah, that's clear from the film itself as well. But I I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was especially because it was so out of pocket. I was like, yes, I'm here for this. Yeah, that's a good recommendation. I want to see it now. Can I ask one question before we get into the cold open? Mm -hmm. So I think you're the first couple on our podcast. Mm -hmm. um, so therefore, I want to ask, do you guys always mostly have the same taste in films? Like, Not is at that all. Not at all. Like, occasionally, like, for instance, other people's children overlaps. But um, I, there was a vivid moment I remember during the <laughs> pandemic when I was watching Berlin Alexanderplatz. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> let's say that we don't agree on certain things <laughs> in what we're watching in the household can't become big i can feel this is the jazz thing right now in our house is great but like just before this there was a vivid continuous watching of curb your enthusiasm mm. which made me <laughs> want to hurt him <laughs> right. i think a really important question is probably what do you think of miami vice 
sorry, I do not have a, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm with this guy, so I have to be with Miami Vice. That's not a choice. <laughs> Any dissenting opinion would result in the end of a relationship. Right. Oh, so. God, I'm so glad I asked this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's dive into your films of choice. My favorite film ever is Sofia Coppola's Somewhere from 2010. It tells us the story of Johnny Marco, a handsome young actor played by Steven Dorff, whose successful but listless life changes drastically when he unexpectedly has to take care of his young daughter, Cleo, played by Elle Fanning. The film is inspired by Sofia's own relationship with her father, legendary director turned winemaker turned director again, Francis Ford Coppola. You know him, he made The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. Sophia and Francis often visited the Chateau Marmont together, where somewhere takes place. This story of cultural elite ennui might sound superficial, but for me, it is quite the opposite. The deeply human portrayal of loneliness and boredom that is followed by genuine connection and hope for a better future touches me deeply every time I watch it. Enhanced by the beautiful and at the same time cleverly economical cinematography of the late Harris Savitas, Coppola draws us into a world that most of us are mostly unfamiliar with. Floating along by the music of Phoenix, The Strokes, and Gwen Stefani, she immerses us in the pale LA sun and gives us some sweet hope for the future. When I was a younger cinephile, a young cinephile, Sophia's 1999 debut film, The Virgin Suicides, resonated deeply with me. In that film, Cecilia Lisbon, played by Hannah Hall, says after a suicide attempt, obviously, doctor, you've never been a 13 years old girl. And I'm sure many girls like me at that age felt hurt and supported in their own complex feelings by a character on the big screen for the first time. Later in life, I would realize that it was precisely the fact that Coppola's cinema is about growing up, that it brought me so much comfort in the years to follow. It's this amazing layered commentary and insightfulness of Sophia about what it's like to be a human in this world that gets to me every time. For example, it was only through a scene in The Beguiled that I understood the complexity of my own rage about being in this world, this patriarchal society. Said during the American Civil War, a wounded Union soldier, played by Colin Farrell, is taken in by a few girls and their teacher who cannot leave their boarding school as the war is raging all around them. He proceeds to manipulate the woman, pitting them against each other. When they realize what he's doing, they enact an act of cruel revenge on him. And as he realizes what they have done, he screams out, You vengeful bitches! I remember sitting in a theater in Paris watching The Beguiled when it came out in 2017, hearing this phrase and thinking, vengeful bitch? Ha, that's me. <laughs> I literally had shirts made with these words printed on them and have been wearing them as a badge of honor ever since. Oh my God, amazing. <laughs> the combination of that intimate hyper-focus on character and the reflection on society and societal norms is what makes Sophia's film so special to me. This integral part of Sophia's work was perfectly described by Hannah Strong in her book Forever Young, which I really recommend for all lovers of everything Sophia Coppola. In this book, Strong highlights the intimacy of plot and an intimacy of character that are key to all of Sophia's films. She writes, For despite all the beauty and opulence that can be seen in her work, Sophia is a realist. 
Her films are rooted in emotion and connection, which she portrays with love and artistry. My friend, the film journalist Joost Broere Huitinga, made a video essay about the recurring themes and images in Sophia's films. That essay is spot on. The recurring image of main characters looking out of windows of moving vehicles, trapped in their worlds of luxury, is a strong illustration of one of Sophia's main and recurring motives. In her new film Priscilla, which is about Priscilla Presley and relationship with Elvis Presley, Sophia returns to her best form and again strongly leans into these themes that she's been exploring during her entire career. When I had the privilege to interview her during the Venice Film Festival this year, after the Priscilla premiere, what struck me most is how the style and demeanor of Sophia were so similar to her own films. I couldn't help but think, this woman is her films. It delighted and touched me. Mostly because the heart of Sophia's films is one of deep humanity, one of loneliness and longing, and the way Sophia can express that in only a single word or gesture. Her films are mirrors that make us look more closely at ourselves, help us to recognize pain, acknowledge trauma, and ultimately find ourselves. But back to somewhere. When I visited the Chateau Marmont in 2013, I didn't know all of this yet. I was 26, had just started working in the film industry, and secretly wanted to be Sofia Coppola. But if that wasn't possible, I wanted to be as close as possible to somewhere. To feel what it was like to dive into Coppola's film, the way that Dorf and Fanning dive into the chateau's swimming pool, having fun without feeling any worries, while the Strokes frontman Julian Casablanca treats us to an early version of what will become the famous song You Only Live Once. I didn't swim that day in 2013. I sat on the terrace. I drank wine in the wide sunlight of Los Angeles. For a moment, I felt like I was in Sofia Coppola's world. And I, at least, was happy. Oh, sweet. <laughs> that was beautiful. It's yes. one of my favorite memories ever, sitting there. Oh, I can imagine. Now combined with meeting her. <laughs> my God. Wow, well, yeah. Let's just start with what that was like. To meet her? Yeah. yeah. Incredibly overwhelming. People say, don't meet your heroes, but... Um, she was literally her films. I, it's really hard to explain, but her demeanor and her style and her voice are her films. You immediately understand why these films come from this human being. You like her even more. I always find when while watching her interviews that... How can I say this in a polite way? I always expect more or something. But I think it is exactly that sort of like bored, laid back kind of attitude that she has that is indeed like so what she also is so excellent at showing us. Listen, it's also very L.A. Yeah. And I have to reveal immediately that I have a connection to L.A. My family, part of my family lives in Los Angeles. So I've uh, grown very close to that place and her films, but also her kind of represent that ennui and that specific light that's only there. <laughs> yeah, I cried really hard after she's meeting like the, her. She's like the Johannes Vermeer Rembrandt of <laughs> the oh, West okay. Coast of America. Wow. She's capturing the light of LA. It's no big deal. <laughs> Before we dive into the films, can we just acknowledge that Sofia Coppola was also a great actress 
in the very much underrated Francis Ford Coppola directed The Godfather 3. Just putting it out there. I mean, it's true. What? <laughs> she plays a, a, a no, small... No, yeah, I know, but I thought you're... You're serious? Yeah. Yes? She's a pretty good actress in that <laughs> oh, film. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No. <laughs> oh. Wait, you don't like the role or you didn't don't remember the role? Or you don't no, like I remember the it being so bad. The acting was so bad. No, I love like, it. No. It's like it's like famous for how bad it is, right? Like that's I find it I find it very effective. I have not seen this. What what is the scene? What does she do? Oh, she well, dies. She dies and she's part of this whole, you know, the, the whole uh, family and stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people were like, this is where the Nepo baby claim, you know, of course mm -hmm. comes in. But mm -hmm. I thought like the Godfather Tree is an incredibly underrated film. And I find her presence in the film very strong. Wow. I think so. What I like about her role in The Godfather Three is that it's like it's the moment that made her like the nepo baby of all nepo babies yeah. but then she plays like the nepo yeah. baby <laughs> which perfect. which is like very i love the the documentary aspect of that <laughs> and i also think that what we read from her like what you're reading from like the interviews and how she's kind of withheld i don't think she withholds any emotion or information but she just grew up on film sets a film set to walking onto a film set for her is like walking into a kitchen for us yeah i think she's just very blasé about it because she feels blasé which i love but it's funny because she kind of really grew up on the film sets of coppola of francis ford that are his weird movies <laughs> you know it's like less successful more experimental ones and then it's funny that in that era after that she becomes the zeitgeist you know and, and with that segues very good into the Virgin Suicides, because that feels like such a era-defining movie. You touched upon it a little bit, but maybe we can all discuss well, briefly how... back yeah. to oh. her oh. as an actress. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. I totally directed like, the like, <laughs> You're moving very fast, because I'm still in shock here. It's So I get the, the, the blasé attitude, but then also, I mean, the way she acts her death in The Godfather 3 is also like the most blasé way of dying I have ever seen in my life. And it's very interesting because it's very weird, but I wouldn't call that great acting. I, it's it's uh, it's interesting. It's definitely <laughs> interesting. Yeah. I prefer that over a lot of other stuff. Well, yeah, yeah, we don't yeah. want Shakespearean acting from Sofia Coppola. I no. want her to die as like, probably in she's LA so self-aware that she's like, I need to die while being cool <laughs> <laughs> she had this show we're not gonna talk about this because nobody's ever seen it but she had this show oh she had like the mtv show she right? had an act uh, no she had a nickelodeon oh, show yeah. i think that was called high octane yourself to the steering wheel because your tank is about to be topped off with high octane on a man-major battleground it's the incredible sophia and like all of her Nepo baby friends uh, played roles in it. They kind of played themselves. Mm. And it was canceled after three episodes and they only aired two. Cool. Wow. I see this. How crazy <laughs> then that from, you know, from... It's on YouTube. From that, that you can make your debut film and it becomes such a, a hit and it becomes such a landmark movie, especially in the like teenage girl film canon. 
So much has been said about the girls over the years. Those girls have a bright future ahead of them. But we have never found an answer. Her act was a cry for help. I heard it was an accident. Even then, as teenagers, we tried to put the pieces together. We still can't. We got a full tank of gas. We'll take you anywhere you want to go. About time. We've been waiting for you guys. But you know that she really made this movie in some way as a reaction to the maleness surrounding her in the 90s. We're talking about the virgin suicides now? Yes. She uh, directed the entire film wearing only girly outfits. And um, that may sound superficial, and now she laughs about it, but it really that feminine storytelling in the virgin suicides and i really think it was such a big hit because people responded to how different that was in some way can you maybe give a short summary of the film the virgin suicides is a film about the lisbon sisters it's based on the jeffrey eugenides book uh and the lisbon sisters want to die uh the film is uh, told from the perspective of the neighborhood boys who are obsessed with the lisbon sisters And they tell the story of how one by one the girls kill themselves. Uh, and it's beautiful. Yeah, it, yeah, is. it gets it really immediately is. at the core of, I think, something that most people experience with their films is that many of the protagonists or many of the characters are these kind of like ciphers. You know, it's hard to uh, to totally get to them. They are like just maybe like Coppola, it's maybe that blase coolness, but... With so many of the characters in her films, it feels like you're always reaching still for their core, whereas many filmmakers would give everything to you or show like the innermost feelings of somebody. You're always second-guessing that with these girls, but also with many of the other characters, it seems. You stay on the surface, but you feel a deepness, and I think that's what's so special about the characters in Sofia Coppola's films. You know... They have deep and complex feelings. You don't know exactly what and how. And what I also really like about the perspective that we have as a as an audience in her films is that so we take the perspective from the neighborhood boys or like the bystanders or the outsiders, but then we also have like a very strong sense of watching the protagonists or the girls in the way they want to see themselves. So... I would almost say in the way they are romanticizing their lives, mm -hmm. like the moment that you just mentioned um, where the girls put their head against the car window and then sort of with cute poppy music playing in the background sort of drift off into um, the landscape that they're looking at is such a moment that you almost stereotypically recognize as, oh, this is me in a movie right now. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Which is also how you wish to be perceived like almost the film speaks to everybody's protagonist syndrome where exactly. like you are the lead ac actor in your yeah, own yeah, yeah. movie which is your life which is and also you uh on yeah. the terrace in the chateau Mont completely yeah. it's totally true and yeah. it's also because of how she coppola uses uh, music in her films because you're always the protagonist in your own video clip right in yeah. some way mm -hmm. and she gives that moment to her main characters too yeah yeah that's so nice in the virgin suicides the soundtrack was made completely by air uh and it i mean i think it's iconic <laughs> <laughs> 
that soundtrack. As are most of her soundtracks. Yeah, by the all way. of her soundtracks are really. My life is a movie for real, for real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This this is a song of one of the soundtracks. No, this is just a like a, a meme. Meme. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not in the loop. Yeah, you were too busy finishing your masters to sorry. read up on the latest memes. Sorry. <laughs> But after the virgin si uh, suicides uh, came lost in translation. What are you doing? My husband's a photographer, so he's here working. He wasn't doing anything, so I came along. What do you do? I'm not sure yet, actually. You think that was her big breakthrough, big, right? Big, big yeah. breakthrough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right? It, she became f known after virgin suicides, and then she didn't win any big prizes with uh, lost in translation, did she? No, she won uh, Best Original Screenplay for it. She won an Oscar? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's oh, that's big, a pretty big pretty prize. Big prize. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because in your cold open, you mention um, somewhere and you mention uh, the Virgin Suicides, but most people, when they think about Sofia Coppola, they think about Lost in Translation. Lost in <laughs> Translation in three words. Depressed Japan age <laughs> gap discourse. <laughs> no, it's uh, Bill Murray. He's a depressed actor. He's in 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 Tokyo for like a gig. He's doing a whiskey commercial for relaxing times. Make it Suntory time. Uh, in the hotel, there's uh, a girl he meets, played by Scarlett Johansson. She's there with her boyfriend, who's like. Husband, a film director, and his husband. Yeah, his husband is her husband is like on the shoot all the time. She's by herself in the hotel. She's bored. Bill Murray's bored. They strike an unlikely friendship that might be more than a friendship, and they drift into the Tokyo night. Uh, what relationship do you have to that film then? Yeah, and then he whispers something in her ear. The end. Yeah, funny you should ask. Uh, I love that film, but that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I think the soundtrack is amazing. And unlike some people at this table, I like Bill Murray in that film. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, <laughs> I, think, I think it's just a very good film. I like it too. It's racist, but I love it. Every encounter with a Japanese person is like fucking ridiculous. And it's like based off of... The fact that they can't pronounce shits or that they're mm -hmm. just like absurd. But I can relate. Like, well, no, I'm not saying, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm not saying that Japanese people are ridiculous, but I can definitely understand the, the absurdity of visiting Japan and just like coming across these people who, who have a very different sense of life. And, but I think primarily a very different sense of what America is and what Americans are and how people react to that. Because it's also people mostly playing along the idea of their American life style. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, the title literally refers to how lost in translation they are at that moment. Yeah, and it's. I feel also like it's a very era-defining film because it's like early 21st century, globalized, you know, internet kind of culture era where all of this convergence of like interest occur, but still there's like... Yeah, there's a bridge that an unknowing American person can't cross when they get 
to Japan and vice versa, but it's true that it plays into a lot of like stupid stereotypes, which are, by the way, also in somewhere, because there they go to Italy and all the Italians are also like, and also all of them are big boobed. Oh yeah, but it's okay to be racist against Italians. Nobody cares about that. Do you like Lost in Translation? I l very much admire parts of the film and especially I feel the more when they have this outward journey, they go into the nightlife and they meet new people and everybody like loosens up and there's this beautiful uh, needle drop where they play a Chemical Brothers song that is just so perfectly placed in the film and they're in this kind of like club and there's this kind of like balloon situation and stuff and the camera just kind of like goes very loosely through it and I'm like, oh, this is like true cinema. I'm really good. I just really can't stand Bill Murray, so I have kind of a problem with the movie. I just don't care about Bill Murray's ennui. I like it with Stephen Dorff, you know? I like it with a lot of the other characters in Coppola films. But I really don't care for Bill Murray and we should all just put him like politely to rest and just let leave him be. We don't need Bill Murray. The world has progressed beyond the need of Bill Murray. Um, I like wow. I, this is such new information to me. He's a not that you hate him, just like that. He's a douche. Like I thought everybody loved Bill Murray. Yeah, but that's the uh, mm -hmm. this is the but annoying. he got canceled, right? Yeah. Well, he's yeah, but Did not he? quite. Also, like this is so annoying. I mean, cancellation never works, yeah. sadly. But uh, yeah, he was a dick to woman on sets, and then somebody spoke out about it. He's kind of like a, a creepo and then, but then he's so, you know, quaint and then everybody finds him funny because he's like a funny dick. And then I'm like, no, like that's the same thing that made Louis C.K. so annoying when he like, it's like, move on. Anyway, <laughs> he's, yeah, anyway, he's, um, okay, he's holding the film back for me a little okay, bit, but okay. it's, uh, I understand well, one, that one detail that I really like about the film. Uh, which is something that I think now would not happen anymore, is that all the parts where the Japanese people speak Japanese are not translated. Mm. I think that is still the case for like the modern day, uh, I don't know if you would watch it on Netflix or whatever. Um, that makes it, I think, super enjoyable. And I thought that would make it really enjoyable for Japanese people to watch as well, which I think generally is definitely not the case. But the Japanese characters are also saying like really fucking funny shit and like, but <laughs> everyone's missing that because we're all lost in translation. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's almost like the film is about yeah. being lost <laughs> in translation. <laughs> okay, so let's move to Marie Antoinette then. You represent the future. All eyes will be on you. She looks like a child. I've heard you make keys as a hobby. Yes. It'll be interesting to see how long she lasts. <laughs> what on earth is going on with that young couple? It's a disaster. This is ridiculous. This, madame, is Versailles. How do you feel about that? Well, I think that's just a party of a movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, I want to mention a great article that was written about this movie not so long ago. It's actually called It Was Like Hosting the Ultimate Party, an Oral History of Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. It was written for Vogue by Keaton Bell. 
And it's very much about the production design of that movie and the costumes and how they actually got to shoot in Versailles, which is really special. Um, and I think that article really covers how special of a gigantic movie this is. It's a really expensive movie for what the movie is really like. Because it's a very small story about this girl who got gets dropped in this palace and is just very lonely, so she throws a bunch of parties. This really solidifies an, a big theme in her films, right, of the gilded cage, like these little creatures in a beautiful cage almost, just stuck with all their wealth. I really love about this film that her uh, signature shot of person staring out of window is actually Marie Antoinette staring out of the window of the uh, horse and carriage <laughs> that yeah, she's yeah. being brought to Versailles into France in. Yeah, I think this is my favorite couple of film. Really? Yeah. Why? Um, well, I think it's, well, it of course falls into a series of what you just mentioned, mentioned Hugo is the the girl in the golden cage, but in this cage, sorry, case. <laughs> um, so Marie Antoinette in, in itself is like a super controversial fig figure, right? Like France fucking hated this film because everyone said she, she was supposed to die in this way. Like we, her, our revolution was born out of this. And then I think Sofia Coppola tries something very... Um, dangerous where she tries to mm. understand the pain of this woman who has sort of killed a nation with her opulence but also understand that she was an underage girl who was not in the power of being born into this world that that she was in I don't know I think it's it's she is so freaking good at making us fall in love with the seduction of this lifestyle and also making us understand that the romanticization of our life and living in the opulence eventually leads to boredom. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I love being seduced by something to then understand that, that it is not the life that you wish for. And it's actually interesting that the character of Marie Antoinette in this Film year literally appeared twice at the beginning of a movie to get her head chopped off. And that's kind of like her lasting, you know, iconic status as the decapitated symbol of the revolution. It was in Napoleon where, uh, the Ridley Scott movie, where Napoleon witnesses the decapitation of Marie Antoinette. And it's also in the latest Pablo Loren film, El Conde, mm, where really? the Pinochet is actually also a vampire and he's also from the French Revolution era and also witnesses the decapitation of Marie Antoinette at wow, the beginning of the film and actually tastes her blood from the guillotine. And so she becomes kind of like a meme or an identifiable symbol. And then this movie's like, yeah, what is it if we just zoom into her life a little bit more? What do we reveal then? I really like that. And I really think that the theme of boredom, more than in any other Sofia Coppola film, we really come, see come to fruition here. She is so bored. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that. But then you have these crazy party scenes with like this insane anachronistic 
music choices. Like there's the Smells Like Teen Spirit in this movie, I think, as well, or something, isn't it? Ooh, I don't remember. I remember. The soundtrack is like bangers only. Completely. And And the I Love Candy scene. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there's this is actually the movie where um, that solidifies the bond between uh, Sophia and Kirsten Dunst, because Kirsten Dunst is also in the Virgin Suicides. But like after this, they're inseparable friends, Mm. inseparable film friends, icons, icons. Yeah, Yeah. actually, uh, this is an aside about her Sophia's newest film, Priscilla, but. Actually, Kirsten Dunst recommend, recommended Kaylee Spaney, mm. lead, lead actress, actress. In, that, in that film. It was so, so fucking good, by the way. Yeah, she really is. And she plays like a character between 14 years old and 30. Just her. Wow. That's good. Anyway, back to uh, Marie Antoinette. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that movie is just a party of a film, right? I have seen it, but it's been probably like 10 years. So I Girl, really don't remember it. it. Yeah, I need to rewatch it. I think I've also, it's like one of the films that I've seen the most in my whole life. I always wow. I watch it like once a year. Really? That's cool. Yeah, it's like when you're sick, you know, and mm-hmm. you're just like in for a ride and something fun. And like, that's really nice. You can watch it in a light way and you can watch it in a profound way, you know? <laughs> That's cool. When I'm sick, I like to watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy. <laughs> so oh my God. Boy cinema, girl cinema. You know. <laughs> Do we need to t- tell more about Somewhere? Hi, Dad. Hey, Cleo. Can decisions shape your life? You'll be aware of five about seven ways to go to school. I need you to take Cleo. Should. Oh, we, we should. We should talk about yeah. the opening scene. Oh God! Yeah, the one where he races. Yes, yeah. it's so good. You love that f- scene I the most. Love no. so good. No, I just love what happens there, and then it happens like ten more times throughout the film. Yeah, it's just a car driving around. <laughs> That's it. That's the opening <laughs> scene. But it's almost like an installation piece. It yeah. feels like it's such an art piece immediately. It's so weird. I mean, spoiler alert, but it, obviously it's a mirror for the end of the film where he finally gets out of a car and starts walking. Yeah. It's a very, I think it's one of Sofia Coppola's most hopeful f- films mm. somewhere. That's why I like it so the, much. The script had like 20 pages or something. No, right? not 20, yeah, but actually I... 42. Okay. Oh. Well, still Can you not recap again uh, what, the, what it's about? It's about uh, a kind of bored actor who is an A-lister, but also is famous fading a little bit. He's played by Stephen Dorff. Uh, and he lives at the Chateau Marmont, which is an iconic uh, hotel in Los Angeles. Uh, and suddenly one day his daughter uh, that he had with his estranged, I think, wife or girlfriend, I don't remember, kind of gets dumped on him mm. because um, his ex leaves and l- just leaves his daughter, their daughter with him. And uh, they have to spend time together. They're forced to spend time together until she goes off to camp. Mm. Small side note, he uh, sends her off to camp in a helicopter because <laughs> he is an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just slowly kind of draw each other out of their shell. Mm. It's a... Elf, it's out of their cars. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Out of their cars, out of their helicopters, out of their mansions. In this film, there's so many beautiful scenes, like, for example, Elle Fanning ice skating to which song? Gwen Stefani. Yeah, yes. Gwen Stefani. That's it's such the a Gwen good Stefani scene. song. That's a beautiful scene. But also, um, uh, because Sophia and her dad often visit Chateau Marmont together, she knew a lot of people from the staff. And the people at the Chateau Marmont had worked there for ages. So, for example, there's a scene with the singing waiter. And that's the actual famous singing waiter from the Chateau Marmont. So a bunch of people in the Chateau play themselves. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned also this quote by Hannah Strand that she's like a realist. But she also kind of is a documentarian of this lifestyle, right? Yeah. She's so authentic and grounded in th their lived experiences. Yeah, I mean, we'll come back to this when we talk about the amazing bling ring. Yes. Because there's a whole other level of realism in that film. But yeah, and it is a very realistic film. I, I think in the way that she portrays these people, it's, it's so small, the difference between the main character at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film. But it's a world of difference. And I kind of recognize this as a human being in the world like you're depressed and then one day you look at the sun and you're like hmm, that's kind of pretty and you feel a little better yeah. small transformations in film can seem like the biggest ones if you do it well yeah and she's really good at doing that yeah i rewatched this film so often i remember when i was a film student uh, i discovered that the screenplay was so short I was just mesmerized by it. I would read it over and over again and just be mesmerized by the fact that all of this fit into this small amount of pages. Yeah. So do you know the film on like a granular level? Can you kind of like play the entire film through your head as kind of like a, a loop? I think that at different moments, different scenes pop up for me. For example, there's this scene where Johnny Marco has to have his head made oh into a God, prosthetic yeah. oh, that's <laughs> so good and yeah. people are put like stuff on his face to make a mold and then there's a bunch of people around him and then one by one they all leave and the camera just lingers on him trapped in that mask and i think that's such a perfect scene of conveying how somebody can be trapped in this gilded cage this time he's not a girl, but... I think that's also sort of what's, what is the, the power of staring at something for a very mm -hmm. long time automatically also sort of, it damages the magic of something, no? Mm -hmm. it's, I think it's, for example, also the same for like the, the opening scene for Lost in Translation that, mm -hmm. that you look at Scarlett Johansson's ass which looks cute, but then like after 40 seconds, it starts to feel off and you start to feel like a pervert. And then it, it's also with the um, pole dancing scenes in mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. I think there's two of them, no? Yeah, like they're very funny as well. A set of twins um, in are, his room are, are hired to pole dance in Johnny Marco's room. And then you watch their entire routine, yeah. which is like minutes. Oh it goes on for minutes. And then the longer you look at it in the beginning, you're like, that's fucking cute. And then mm. after a while, you're like, wow, that's fucking sad. And I think that is something you recognize from your own life as well. That after a while, the 
the sort of fast joy that you seek for becomes misery in repetition. Yeah. And also just like when a camera just shows everything in a kind of like wide shot, it yeah. just <laughs> makes things seem so flat and, 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 and sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but also then the camera ca cuts to Johnny Marka and he's asleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also yeah. she, doesn't, she doesn't edit that much, right? She doesn't yeah. do a lot of coverage. So it's just one long shot for a long time instead of like zooming in on small details that probably... Yeah, it's a very economical it. style. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, she worked with Harris Savitas up until the bling ring. I think he still shot the bling ring, but shortly after uh, the bling ring, he passed away. And it was mm. really a big loss yeah. for her. He was a big collaborator. Yeah. You see it in um, in the bling ring as well, which is arguably one of my favorite Sofia Coppola films which is uh, an adaptation of uh, an article that was published in a magazine about these rich, bored kids that sneak into the villas of celebrities in uh, and around Hollywood that all have these huge mansions that are often not occupied because they're like, <laughs> you know, on a cruise at the other side of the world or whatever. And they kind of like just steal stuff of these celebrities. They pose in these mansions. They take selfies and they kind of like wear the skin of celebrity and ultra fame and richness for a little while, but kind of like as a parasite of it. And the main character in the, in the film is Emma Watson and her group of friends do this. But then, of course, things kind of like go awry and, you know, eventually they get caught. There's just this incredible scene where they sneak into the house of Paris Hilton um, Which is actually the House, house of, of Paris, Paris Hilton. Hilton. That's what I meant with like ultimate realism. She got yeah. like Paris Hilton and a couple of other celebrities to give in her their, their house again. But then it's just this like super wide surveillance style shot of them sneaking into the house, and the house has a lot of glass and stuff, so you can really see them kind of like enter the house and go through these like different areas of the place and go through it, and then. There's just this tremendous reveal that there's all this stuff in Paris Hilton's house with Paris Hilton's face on it, like the cushions and stuff, like so all that good. Paris Hilton branding. It's just this insane Russian nesting doll of like Paris Hilton stuff that they're like dealing with. And another great scene, which comes back to the, like, if you just show something long enough, but then the reverse effect, when a guy comes into his kind of girlfriend's, or no, when a girl comes into her boyfriend's kind of room, she sneaks in. She's got a gun on her and she's like kind of like playing with it and pointing it at him. And it's just such a tense moment. I always hate it when characters point guns at people because then you're like, oh no, what's going to happen? <laughs> but she really squeezes that like suspense as long as possible. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucking good. Yeah, and it's the least pretty movie, I would argue. I mean, let's not count on the rocks. Poker face. Poker face. Poker face. Nice, nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very different color palette. Yeah. See, right? Yeah. It's a lot less glamorous, which mm. is, I think, very effective of kind of showing how glamorous these kids wanted to be and how yeah. unglamorous they really were. Mm. Yeah. I think. But it's I super do find effective. the film very like. Stylistically, I find it a very strong one. I've, the cinematography has this great digital quality to it, which I respond to very much. 
but I remember it as like cinematograph, like as in terms of its cinematography, as one of the more ambitious ones. Actually, I find the framing in it very, very good. I haven't rewatched this I film in a long it too. time. Me like too. But I want to now. <laughs> this is too much in detail to respond to. <laughs> but we often have had debates about, you know, because the Blinrin is my favorite one, and we watched it together once, and then Sasha was still like, no, it's not that good as you remembered it was. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's great. <laughs> Rewriting his memory. Yeah. But, I, you know, what's funny also, not ne necessarily about this film, but it reminds me of it, is that, I really enjoy Sofia Coppola's celebrity status also. Mm -hmm. Like she has a very different celebrity status uh, compared to other film directors For because sure. she's like, she's also like really a fashion girly yeah. and she's like really homies. She's like down with the other celebs, which I don't know. It feels so well into what sh the world that she loves and dismantles. It's, it's yeah. funny that she and her daughter know. recently went viral on TikTok yeah, for being true. grounded. Make a vodka sauce pasta with me because I'm grounded. Because I tried to charter a helicopter from New York to Maryland on my dad's credit card because I wanted to have dinner with my girlfriend. I don't know the difference between a garlic or onion, and I just I just have Google images of onions on my phone and I just I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. Well, I thought I would do this since I'm already grounded because my parents' biggest rule is like I'm not allowed to have any um, public social media accounts. Here's why: it's because they they don't want me to be a nepotism kid. But. TikTok's not gonna make me famous, so it doesn't really matter. But is this an onion? She, I think, used a helicopter or something. <laughs> oh and God. then she was grounded and she was she made like a pasta in a very shitty way. And everybody was like, oh, we stand. She's so funny. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, there's the stand culture really, I think, be formed along the lines of Sofia Coppola's fame in, in a funny way. Yeah, but I think that's what uh, is so sincere about her. I think she really knows this celebrity culture and she lives in it and she loves it. And that's why she can tell us something profound she's about it. She's unapologetic as well, you would yeah. say. Yeah, and also she's like besties with Marc Jacobs and that's why she's always in the ads. Oh, yeah. So The Beguiled, we did a full episode about already, so we can maybe touch upon it only very briefly. You vengeful bitches! <laughs> Perfect. What have you done to me? You vengeful bitches! Perfect. And then we get to On the Rocks, which... We can skip. We can skip. You know what I saw, which is not a film, but directed by Sofia Coppola? The opera La Traviata, which was... Oh. Excuse me, sorry, what? Yeah. You watched the Sofia Coppola-directed opera? Yes, oh my God. I did. Designed Eight by Valentino where? in Wait. Rome. In the opera of Rome. You... Uh, <laughs> it was the... It, oh, my God. I know, it's fucking insane. How the, was it? It was so good. It's like... So, the whole... All the costumes were designed by Valentino. And then the opening scene is like... The curtains open and there's like stairs, high ones that go up to the ceiling. And then there's like La Traviata, the woman, the courtesan mm -hmm. woman on top of the stairs. And then she walks down, takes hours. And then there's this veal that covers the whole stair. Wow. And then that's like, she takes forever singing, going down the stairs. Scene one, you know, like. That's awesome. That sounds great. so cool. I'm yeah. so jealous. Yeah. And I wow. had like a really, well, in hindsight it's not that tough but at the moment it was quite tough because in that night it was like the the happening night of rome it was la traviata by sofia coppola and there was a concert of chris brown <laughs> and and it was like in sort of like the you know the the edgy era of, of chris brown so i was like oh, oh my yeah. god these two great 
oh moments in history of time. Like I think you made the right choice. Yeah, I definitely I think did. So too. I definitely history did. tells us you did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but didn't we skip one thing she also made? Because I think it was before On the Rocks. Oh, or the Bill Murray Christmas. The thing? very Murray Christmas. Uh, yeah, we skipped that. I haven't seen it. Because it's yeah. television. Hey, do you want to say anything about Bill Murray? No. <laughs> I want to say one thing about On the Rocks, though, which I do find very well done in the film is that it again deals with this complex you know father-daughter relationships and this one i think is even more honest about maybe behind the scenes her relationship with her dad um also because she's more mature the main character in on the rocks is more mature than you know al fanning is in somewhere and just to have them both as like professional entities next to each other and still acknowledging how her father's legacy is overshadowing some parts of what she does, even though she's a stone-cold professional. I thought it was very interesting and uh, very uh, gave some real insight into the Coppola family dynamic. So I was very grateful for that in the movie. I think it's actually, even though I don't like Phil Murray, a quite underrated film. Hmm. You know what's maybe interesting to kind of think about is that in her films, we see the father-daughter dynamic a few times. But when I spoke to her after the premiere of Priscilla, she actually said that the big inspiration for her was for Priscilla was her mom's position in the 70s uh, of like uh, this ambitious female mm. in the 70s and what that meant. And I kind of felt like uh, Sofia Coppola aged a little bit and mm. kind of... Uh, saw past her dad to her mom and that's so interesting because like she made a documentary about um it's called heart of darkness a filmmaker's apocalypse about uh you know making of apocalypse now and one her mom and one yeah sofia coppola's mom uh, and one could argue that that is a more important film in film history than apocalypse now is for sure as a f- like final note, because uh, most here haven't seen it, but you said that Priscilla is like a return to form. Can you maybe tell a little bit why this is for you return to form and what makes the film really tick? Why is it so good? Uh, what I really love... So Priscilla is about uh, Priscilla Presley. It's also based on Priscilla Presley's book about her relationship with Elvis Presley. And um, it is a film about a very young girl who gets into a relationship with probably the most famous man in the world at that moment. And uh, what's so beautiful about it is, A, it's a return to themes for Coppola's, for example, the gilded cage, because she's completely trapped in that gilded cage of his fame in Graceland, literally. It's also a return to the aesthetic, to kind of the soft light and uh, the woman in cars and, you know, <laughs> watching through the window. Um, and what's so, what I loved, what touched me personally the most about it is that it's a film, again, about ennui, about boredom, about being trapped in this situation. And this film actually bores you at some point. You're like, okay, I get it. She's bored. She's trapped. And then it delivers such a gut punch in the last scene and you know you know their history so you know what's going to happen but still it catches you off guard and I think that's 
amazing skill of a filmmaker to be able to do that. I'm looking forward to watching it. I've already seen it once, yeah. but I'm looking forward to watching it again. I cried so hard. Thank you so much for joining our conversation today, Sasha. It was Thank a joy to me. have you here. You need to come back again. Yay. Yay. You're always welcome. Our podcast, Nepo Baby. <laughs> <laughs> Gladly take that title. You can now see Coppola's newest film, Priscilla, together with a retrospective of her older works, uh, starting today, the 4th of January, at Lab 11. Showtimes and tickets can be found on lab111.nl or in our show notes. Want to hear more of our thoughts on Coppola's work? You can listen back to one of our very first episodes titled On Female Desire and Balancing the Gaze on Coppola's 2017 film The Beguiled. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on whichever platform you're listening on and share so more people can find us. Make sure to subscribe and stay up to date with all new releases. If you want to join the conversation, feel free to send any questions or requests at celebratingcinema at lab111.nl and follow us at lab111 on Instagram. As always, we provide show notes, including all films mentioned, at celebratingcinema.com. This was a Lab 111 production, edited and produced by Elliot Bloom, with music from Hugo Emmerzaal and artwork by Studio FFF. <laughs> <laughs>